Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Gramps. I am Guthrie Chamberlain and we are on day 2141 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we continue with our extended series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 9 of a 43-week series about the good news according to John the Apostle. John has a unique style of narrative as we walk with him through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Thank you, Sue. Thank you, kids. We do appreciate each one that helps us with our children's messages each week. We thank you for those that are joining us online also. And Paula. For- and Paula. Paula does a lot of preparation. You know, I band her back and forth as she's going through the various children's messages. And I'm, I'm just truly blessed to have a wife like Paula, that's for sure. Okay. As we continue our series today on the good news according to John the Apostle, Jesus presents us with a lesson and an example of building God's kingdom today. And today's passage continues last week's message, and we're going to be reading John chapter 4, verses 27 through 42. It's located on page 1652 and 1653 in your pew Bible. So follow along as I read today's scripture. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws the wages and the harvest of the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the one saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Now, as we get started on this week's message, I want to back up a couple verses from last week just to set the stage to tie the two messages together. And if you were here or you watched online, remember that Jesus appealed to the woman of Samaria six times, and each time she came back with excuses and arguments against what Jesus was saying, trying to justify herself. Jesus was able to squelch each session, each reason, and he got to the core of why he was really there. 
It was not coincidence, because we don't have coincidences in our life. Everything is God-ordained. Now, if we looked at verses 25 and 26, in the New Living Translation, the woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Now, Jesus knew he had her at that point. If you remember last week's message, so he basically said, well, great, you don't have to wait any longer. I am the Messiah, and I am here just as it was promised. So it left the woman without any excuses. He had answered every argument that she had. If you remember verse 26, the phrase I am is a particular emphatic Greek word, ego eimi, and it harkens back to God's self Identification in that burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, where that voice or that image of what some believe was a precursor of Christ said, I am who I am. Because Moses says, well, who do I tell the people has sent me? He says, tell them, I am who I am. I am has sent you. Now, the proof that this woman who had questionable moral character at the best, life was miraculously changed, was her subsequent actions. You can always tell whether something is true by the following actions. Or the old saying goes, the proof of the pudding is eaten. You knew it was good pudding after you tasted it. It might look good in the bowl, but when you taste it, you know that it's good pudding. The return of the disciples and their apparent shock over Jesus' obvious breach of Jewish etiquette, it could have been an awkward situation. But John tells us that they avoided confrontation with him. In the New Living Translation, I'll read verse 27. It says, They were shocked to find him talking to the, the woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, What do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? In their minds, they had to be thinking, Teacher, you're not following the Jewish rules, the regulations that have been set up for years. This woman has three strikes against her. First of all, she's a woman. You don't talk to women out in public. Second of all, she's a woman of moral, questionable character. And thirdly, she's a Samaritan. She is a dirty dog, a half-breed. She has three strikes against her. None of that mattered to that woman anymore. And it never did matter to Jesus Christ. And said, we all know that the woman forgot why she was even there. Was Her original task was to fetch water in the midday because she was humiliated and wasn't allowed to go out with the women in the morning or the evening. So she had to go under the burning sun to fetch her water. She forgot all about that task. And she left her jar excitedly by the well and ran that half a mile between the well and the town of Sychar to consult the religious authorities of her town. Verse 28 goes on. The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming out of the village to see him. The construction of the Greek sentence anticipates a, neg a negative response to the phrase, could this possibly be the Messiah? 
It was phrased in such a way in the Greek that you would anticipate a negative response. No, it can't be the Messiah. But then she presents evidence and suggested that she, in fact, did believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And remarkably, the details that were so painful in last week's lesson that she avoided discussing earlier with Jesus became the joyful confirmation of her spiritual hope. Her testimony had a positive effect. The people of the town were compelled, drawn out, to meet the man who could possibly be their savior. As it said, so the people came streaming out of the village. And if you remember last week, I talked about the wadis. The wadis were those trenches in the hills where water during the rainy season would flow down these wadis and into the well. During the dry season, they were dry. They were sort of misleading. But during the rainy season, they would be filled with water, and all this water would fill the Jacob's well. And that's what the picture is of these people from the village came streaming out to see Jesus Christ. She displayed an attitude of worship, and we should be ready all the time to share our testimony. As we're told in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life, if someone asks you about the hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. Never pass up an opportunity. Now, there was an interlude here of verses between when the woman left and ran back to her town and when the townspeople reached the well. And it was a discussion between Jesus and that woman and then him ministering to the rest of the town and it allows us to see why John included this particular incident in his gospel. There's a break in th- verses 34, 31 through 34 that reminds me of those old Western TV shows where there'd be a bar fight or a bad guy shooting up in the town, and then they would cut the scene to a ranch. And it would say, meanwhile, back at the ranch, and it was all peaceful. It's a different situation. And that's the type of story that we have here. Meanwhile, meanwhile, remember that odd phrase that John inserted into his good news from last week that set the scene for this interlude? It said Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way in verse 4. So now it had become evident. He had to redeem this particular woman of all the town people, townspeople of Sychar. This one woman who had a questionable reputation. He had to reach her And it brought the entire town out to see Jesus Christ because of her testimony. If it was somebody who was a saint in the town of Sychar, it would not have nearly the impact on the townspeople. And just as importantly, Jesus had to go through Samaria on the way to give the disciples a crucial lesson in evangelism. Now, in contrast, the disciples were more concerned about Jesus' physical needs, but we can't really fault them on on this need to take care of Jesus physically because they were students, they were disciples, and the rabbi were to be taken care of by their students. They were to feed him and give him water and give him rest and make sure he was protected so that he could teach them. That was their responsibility. So we can't really fault them. That's what they expected, were expected to do. But in verse 31 through 34, it says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have the kind of food you know nothing about. 
Did someone bring him food while we were gone? They asked each other. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. Now, it's common throughout the theme, a theme throughout John, the disciples did not understand that Jesus' whole entire purpose was for reaching the lost. That is why he came to earth. And they did not understand that their destiny moving forward was that same purpose, is to reach the lost for Jesus Christ. Moreover, the encounter provided a tangible lesson. The first rule of the kingdom of God Obeying the word of God is more important and more satisfying than fulfilling anybody's physical needs. Now, the Old Testament passage of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which was repeated in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, and Luke chapter 4, verse 4, is brought into this context. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this was the lesson that they were learning here. As we move on to verses 35 through 38, instead of Jesus turned their attention from the physical needs of food into that universal law of planting and harvesting. Now, we don't necessarily think of the universal law of planting and harvesting as the same impact as the law of gravity, but it's just as fixed and it's just as powerful. The law of gravity keeps us firmly rooted to this earth. If it wasn't for the law of gravity, we'd float off into space. But the same impact is that law of planting and harvesting. If you plant wheat, you're going to harvest wheat. If you plant corn, you're going to harvest corn. If you plant good deeds in your life, you're going to harvest good deeds in your life. If you plant bad deeds in your life, you're going to reap or harvest bad deeds in your life. It's the universal law of planting and harvesting. Now, Jesus, in this scenario, pointed to the hillside around this well, and he pointed to the fields of barley. And barley was a poor man's seed. It was less expensive to grow than wheat or rye or some other grain that was more profitable. So it was the poor man's grain, and it was on the hillside all around this well back to the hills of Sychar. And the color faded. In the spring, it turns green as it grows, and then it fades throughout the year as it continues to ripen. And this is what Jesus is referring to, the harvest as white for harvest. And it's an exaggeration, meaning that it's extremely ripe because it usually turns to a light brown, but if you let it go too long, the seed pods start following on the, falling on the ground from the stalks. And a farmer's tragic and humiliating plot would be to waste that grain by allowing it to ripen too much and it fall to the ground. It means it would be extremely ripe. But Jesus thought of evangelism as a harvest of what God had nurtured and ripened, and he called his disciples to harvest men and women as God had prepared them. Verses 35 through 38, it says, You know the saying, four months between planting and harvesting, but I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest are people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. 
You know the saying that one plants and another one harvests, and it is true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant, and others had already done the hard work, and now you get ready to gather in that harvest. It's just like when we go out in the spring and plant, whether it's wheat or barley or rye or grass seed, we plant. Now they, in Jesus' day, had to spread it by hand. It was a lot less precise than what a cedar would, seeding element like this would be. I used this on our plot around the garage we had put in to reseed it. And it worked pretty well. It spread it pretty evenly. So this is one phase of the law of planting and harvesting, is the planting. The next phase is the harvesting. After it's ripened, and the, the harvesters would go in and slice the barley stalks to the ground, and then someone else would come behind and gather them up. Most of them had these short ones, but if they were wealthy enough where they didn't have to bend over all day long, they could harvest with the size that would take them. They would be more productive being able to harvest with the long side as they cut down the stalks of barley. And then they would gather them into bundles and then take them to the market. This is the laws of planting and harvesting that we see. The story is a perfect analogy for each of us in building God's kingdom. Some of us plant while others of us harvest. And our roles might switch back and forth during each season of life. Sometimes we may be planting the seed in people's life. Other times we may be harvesting what others had planted in their lives and reap that harvest. This is the perfect analogy of our roles. We need to always be prepared to plant when we have the opportunity and then the harvest when the crops are ripe. Never miss an opportunity and never underestimate your role in the planting and harvesting. Never underestimate. No matter what your physical condition is, no matter what your education is, never underestimate your role in God's kingdom. As far as being a citizen of God's kingdom and bringing people into his kingdom. Now, John was a master storyteller, and he turns from Jesus' lecture to a living illustration that he had orchestrated. He had planned it all out. Many Samaritans came streaming from the village like the wadis of water streaming to that well, and they followed the woman's witness to discover that Jesus was there himself. What an unusual evangelist. You say, well, I'm not qualified to tell other people of Jesus Christ. I'm not qualified to teach others. Think about this evangelist here. She was a woman. She had unwholesome roots. She had been married five times, and the person she was living with now wasn't even her husband. She had no seminary training. She knew very little of the Jewish theology found in God's word, the law, the Talmud at the time. She couldn't even explain why Jesus must be the Messiah. And yet, she merely reported on her personal encounter with him, with that Jesus, that Messiah, who said, I am the Messiah. All she did was come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? Now, in response to the, of this, the Samaritan stands in sharp contrast to the religious leaders that were in Jerusalem at the temple. 
Unlike those theologically trained Jews that were running that temple and also a market scam in the courtyard, these hated what was referred to as half-breeds welcomed Jesus into their lives to teach them. In verses 39 through 41, it says, Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. When he came out, and when they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for more to hear the message and believe. Now, John concludes the lesson on evangelism by telling the statement of these newly harvested Samaritans. Although, in comparison, the woman's testimony brought them to hear Christ, they came out in streams to hear Christ, it was their own encounter with the word that changed their lives. If you remember John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, So the word became human and made his home among us. They came to that one who became flesh, and it caused them to trust Jesus as their Savior. Verse 42, it says, and the woman, Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard for ourselves. Now we know that indeed he is the Savior of the world. So what's our application here in verses 1 through 42, last week's lesson and this week's lesson? I've sort of subtitled this, The Few, the Humble, the Harvesters. And as John told a story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman, John consciously emphasized the sharp distinction between the attitudes that Jesus had toward this woman and the attitudes that the disciples had toward this woman. Their dissimilarities is especially clear in the interlude in this conversation where they said, meanwhile, they said, Rabbi, eat something. You must be hungry. The woman greeted the townspeople. And while the woman witnessed to those townspeople, the Lord impressed on the hearts of the disciples the urgent need for laborers to harvest souls that were ripened by the Holy Spirit. The disciples illustrated several attitudes that we frequently keep us from entering the harvest field. And those three come to mind. And if you look at your bulletin insert on the side that has the picture on it, perspective, perspectives of the, on the harvest, as citizens of God's kingdom, our occupation is to be actively engaged in building God's kingdom through evangelism. And the first point is the joy of your occupation keeps you from arguing over the worth of people. We need to put off the prejudice and the bigotry that we have in our lives. The disciples saw Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, and to them, she was as low as you could get on the social status poll. They simply could not believe it. She had three strikes against her already in their minds. So she was not worth talking to. Not worth the effort to reach for God's kingdom. And let's face it, we care more about certain people and their salvation than we do about other people. Our creator, however, doesn't rank people by the scale of their worthiness. We all are unworthy of salvation, yet we're equally loved by him. The second point is the priority of your occupation inspires you to handle the details of life quickly and then move on to more pressing matters such as the ingathering of souls. We get so consumed by those mundane details of life, yet the disciples showed more concerned about the rabbi who had not eaten 
which was very considerate of them, but they missed the point that they couldn't stop long enough about thinking about food to notice their master's excitement in this ordeal. They left him weary and hungry and longing for food and thirsty from the travel, and they returned to find him brimming with energy. Anyone with the least bit of perspective should have set the food aside and said, Something's different here when we left you weary beside the well. You're excited now about what's going on. Why this change of attitude? And fortunately for their self-serving, short-sighted disciples, the situation was far outside their comfort zone, outside their prejudiced upbringing, that they did not understand what was really going on here. Now, we spend most of our time dealing with so-called necessities of life, fixing meals, keeping schedules, and making a living, all of which are important but they're only part of the process of building God's kingdom. When was the last time you set a time aside to just go to somebody who was hurting and listen to them and minister to them? When was the last time you set a time aside to share the gospel with one of your friends or somebody in the neighborhood? And the third one is the urgency of your occupation urges you to overcome procrastination and make the most of the present opportunities. We're lulled into inaction about the promises of tomorrow. We're looking forward to God coming back, Jesus Christ coming back a second time, and we get so fixed on that that we forget that we have a responsibility today. Christ may return today, but it might be 10,000 years from now. So what are we going to do in our lifetime during that span of time? The disciples didn't appreciate the urgency of their call. Jesus used popular catchphrase among the farmers of the day, four months between planting and harvesting, to rouse them into action. But he said, in effect, not four months, now. The time for harvest is now. And the last point on that, that side of your bulletin insert, we will never enter the harvest if we wait until our prejudice, our pettiness, or procrastination are no longer issues. The fields are already ripe for harvest. So as we procrastinate, we presume upon tomorrow. And in the meantime, death continues to happen. Moreover, the time between now and the return of Christ when he establishes his global Eden is growing closer every day. It may be tomorrow. It may be 10,000 years. But one thing for sure, it's closer today than it was yesterday when he'll return. Now, people actively engaged in building God's kingdom through evangelism lack many attitudes that will destroy churches. The joy of our call or our occupation keeps us from arguing about the worth of people because everybody's worthwhile. The priority of the call inspires them to handle the details of life quickly and then move on to more pressing matters, such as taking care of our fellow Believers and those that are seeking God. The urgency of their call prods them to overcome procrastination and to make the most of our present opportunities. As we're told in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, so be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Now, as citizens of God's kingdom, we should never, neither have the time or energy to waste 
on anything but what's important to God's kingdom. We need to assist and welcome those immigrants that are crossing over the border from Satan's domain into God's kingdom. And you see on TV these immigrants from Ukraine rushing into Poland or other surrounding countries and just the urgency that they have in their lives because their lives are being threatened. The same is happening from Satan's domain into God's kingdom. Let us meet those who are ready to cross over that border from Satan's domain to God's kingdom with open arms and welcome them into God's kingdom by teaching them God's word and by living life that is also a priority. Now, if you'll allow me to switch metaphors and then we'll wrap up this message. People actively engaged in evangelism are like people on the front lines of a battle. Think of the battle in Ukraine as a perfect image. Those on the front lines are in that battle. And I read a quote from a member of the Marine Corps who had been seen more than his share of frontline action. And he says, the men in the front lines never complained about the food. It was the guys farthest from the battle who grumbled the most when standing in the chow line because the urgency of the battle made that food seem immaterial. It was necessary, yes, to nourish them, but it wasn't the most important thing in their lives. Life and death struggles has a way of keeping us and keeping things in perspective. Now, if you look over on the other side of your bulletin, I just listed here some lessons for disciples. And what are the lessons we can learn from this passage John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. First of all, the testimony of a transformed person is extremely powerful in drawing friends and acquaintances to Christ. Second, Jesus' mission was the focus of his life and passion. And what energized him far more than food did, does our mission energize us? Third, the spiritual harvest can happen anytime when God prepares people even seemingly hardened people, those that we don't think we can reach. So we need to look at people as if God is working in them already, not as impossible cases. Fourth, we will be rewarded for our labors when Christ returns and reaps that final harvest. But until then, we need to be about the harvest. Fifth, Jesus is the Savior of the world. And sixth, Jesus altered his normal ministry parameters temporarily he must go through Samaria because he had a specific purpose for going through. When the Father opens new doors, and I put down here a prayer that we can pray, O oh Lord, take away our prejudices and our cultural differences and upbringings and what part of town a person lives in or how much money that others have. Forgive us for our closed-mindedness, our narrowness, our selfishness. Please give us a world vision for the worldwide harvest that you seek in our day. Give us the eyes to see the magnitude of this harvest and the volunteer to be your hands extended. Give us zeal so that our passion is not for gourmet food or selfish luxuries, but our food is to do your work. Please help us to find our satisfaction in you. In Jesus' name we pray. The principle remains the same for evangelism. We will never enter the harvest and if we wait until our prejudices, our pettiness, and our procrastinations are no longer an issue, we are called to the harvest. Therefore, we must obey that call. Once we move to the front lines, 
then that food, what's on the gourmet menu, is not nearly as important. The hindrances quickly fade away. And that's the lesson that, jo that John is trying to get across to us in chapter 4, verses 1 through 42, on the woman from Samaria, the most unlikely evangelist of anyone in that area. And yet God used her, and God can use us. Next week, we're going to learn a completely different scene. We're going to take another snapshot of Jesus heals at a distance. And it's taken from John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. So if you would, this week, read that in preparation for next week's message. Not quite spring yet, is it, Paula? We've got about five more minutes. You want me to keep going? Or we could, yeah. So, blessed spring is here in five minutes. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your goodness to us. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you for this example of a woman who we wouldn't take the time to minister to, Father, but Jesus did because he knew if he reached her that he could reach the entire town of Sychar with the message that the Messiah was here. Help us to look at those that we come in contact with on a daily basis in the same way, Father, that Jesus says, I am the Messiah. Let us follow him. Let us be ready for the harvest that is ripe to do our part in building your kingdom, Father, to rescue those who are crossing the border between Satan's domain and God's kingdom. Let us be prepared to harvest them, to bring them into your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly, I am your friend as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward, enjoy your journey, and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's Word.